when we uh, the last time I was able to correspond with with Maya Abu Al Hayat uh, was about a month ago, and what she asked me to do was to tell Palestinian stories and tell stories about the journalists who are being killed and the children are being killed. And um, I read this story today. It's very brief, um, but it was on social media, so I figured I'd I'd open with this. Uh, this is a post from uh, Fadi Quran. Uh, he is a campaign director uh, for Avez. Uh, uh, I th- that is, uh, I did not know what that was, but it's a huge, um, yeah, it's a huge association of activists from all over the world who have done some really cool stuff. It's uh, A-V-A-A-Z, so look that up, but this, this guy works for them. Uh, but this was his post uh, posted uh, today, just a few hours ago. Driving in Palestine now is more dangerous than ever. Yesterday, I drove from Ramallah to Dura, a village near Hebron, to attend the funeral of Ehed, my friend's baby sister, who had just become a mother. She was shot by an Israeli sniper, a heartbreaking loss. If I could use Israel's apartheid roads designed for settlers, the journey would be about 80 to 90 minutes drive, but it took me four hours. Why? First, we were forced to take segregated Palestinian-only roads, which make a a two-and-a-half-hour drive because of checkpoints. But these days, it's even worse, as Israel has imposed an even more strict strangulation policy over the West Bank, which means even some of those segregated roads are blocked, and there are ten times as many checkpoints. Taking this drive outside our village, cities of residence, is extremely dangerous for three reasons. One, settler attacks. Israeli settlers are in rampage mode, and you don't know when you could get hit by a rock or a bullet from one of their raging mobs. Two, soldiers at the end of a wrong turn. There are no signs for what roads are currently open or closed for us. You have to guess or stop to ask locals every few miles. If you make a wrong turn and end up face-to-face with soldiers, they can shoot you and claim you attacked them. Three, Arrests for social media posts. If you're stopped at a checkpoint, soldiers these days are taking folks' phones and checking their WhatsApp and Telegram and Instagram. If you have a message standing in solidarity with Gaza or anything the Israeli soldiers see as offensive, they'll beat you to a pulp and could even arrest you. My friend Ayla, a human rights lawyer, was just arrested at one of these checkpoints this evening. We don't know why but it likely relates to her work and messages they found on her phone about it. On my end, driving back at night was a nightmare, mainly because I had a friend in the car and was worried about him. As we drove back, these historically busy streets were ghostly empty because nobody is taking the risk of driving at night unless necessary. Every turn I'd take, I'd slow down to a crawl to make sure there were no trigger-happy soldiers or angry settler too ready to pounce. I got lucky as although we waited at a checkpoint for an hour, the soldiers got bored and literally opened the checkpoint for all the cars to pass without any security check, proof they're using these checkpoints arbitrarily as collective punishment. In Dura, I saw where Ahed was shot. The soldiers had stormed her village as part of their intimidation tactics in the West Bank to keep people anxious. Ahed ran to her roof to warn her husband to come home, an Israeli sniper shot her in the head. As I drove home, thinking of Ahed, her heart, (coughs) broken family, the families of her friends in Gaza, all the souls we've lost, and how easily my life could be taken for simply driving across my ancestral lands to help my friend in her grief. It shouldn't have to be said, but our lives are precious, they're beautiful. They're equally worthy of joy and basic dignity. I'm committed to one day being able to drive across my people's ancestral land, a free man, surrounded by my liberated people. If Israel's death machine is haunting us around every corner, we might as well live fighting for a life worth dying for. Comrades and friends, hello. Rob here with the Highlands Bunker Podcast. We're coming to you live on tape from the shadow of Rockford Tower. We've had a spot of bad weather, so we're beaming in tonight. Um, Our guest I'm very happy to introduce is Rochelle Wilson. Uh, Rochelle is a 
uh, advocate and independent journalist and has her own radio show on 95.3 WHGEFM. Uh, you guys have probably heard it now because uh, we, we put it on our channel a couple of weeks ago. I was so happy to be on uh, Make Some Intelligent Noise. It's on Saturdays from 1 to 2. And uh, folks, you might be hearing me there again, so get ready for that. Uh, but I do want to welcome Rochelle. Thank you for doing this. And um, and as always, even though you're beaming in, you will you will get the the, the podcast uh, uh, the studio invite for sure. Thank you so much, Rob Vanella. It has just been a pleasure uh, to make your acquaintance, to get to know you, to have you on my show. I again, I believe you are quite the analyst when it comes to politics, uh, and I just appreciate you. And I thank you so much for allowing me an opportunity to share my story with you tonight. Um, it has been years since someone has interviewed me. I, I typically do all the interviewing. Well, that's what I, yeah, that's what I said uh, before we started. I, I had the same feeling coming on your show for the first time. I was like, well, this is neat. I'm sort of in the hot seat. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to have to sort of wing it when they, when they ask me what, when she asked me questions, you know? Um, but I'm excited. Um, because right you in are... the hot seat. <laughs> well, maybe not the hot seat for you, but for some, for some. Um, yeah, I'm excited tonight because um, you're doing really interesting work. I can re so relate to it. And you're a local person. And so um, for people like that that come in here, which is a lot, I always ask them about their background, where they were born, how they grew up, what was it like? And, and then, you know, how it led to the, the type of work that they're doing um, in the community and for the community. So that's really how we'll start. Um, yes, well, thank you. It's a really good question. Um, it causes me to actually think about that uh, and how to answer that appropriately. I think the best way to give it to you is just real and raw. Uh, I'm a Philly girl from the streets of South Philadelphia and eventually uh, a place called Germantown. Pennsylvania. I grew up, you know, being the half breed. You know, my father is Sicilian and my mother is African American and Indian. And so that was kind of tough in those days, in the 60s, when there was a lot of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and we had uh, the Black Panthers. Uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. So for me to be this, uh, you know, high yeller. Uh, and some other names that I won't say right now, but basically just being mulatto, you know, I had my fair share of uh, fights. I had to defend myself on many occasions on both sides of the fence. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I had to claim one side or the other. And since America uh, will always see me as a black or brown woman, that is the the position that I have I have stepped into. So learning how to fight, I think, um, is probably probably was good for me because it helps me in my advocacy today. It's just a different fight instead of you know spitting on your hands, on your knuckles, and putting your dukes up. Uh, now it's it's kind of a it's more of a verbal uh, put your dukes up type of a fight, but it's still a battle. Yeah, I feel that. Well, for one, for one, one of the things I, I, I ask people sometimes, um, but I think you can kind of tell if, if you're if you're sort of our type of people. I ask people if they've ever been punched in the face, <clears throat> because there are certain people that you interact with or you speak with, and if you thought about it, you would know that they never got punched in the face. It's just a thing that you can feel like there's a certain way people act. When they've been in, when they've mixed it up, and when they haven't, and so I, that, that's the first thing I, I really I feel that. I um, you know, I had no choice but to learn how to defend myself pretty early in life, and I mean as early as you know six, seven, eight, nine uh, years old in school and and different things, and walking home from school, uh, I've had my fair share of, uh, as you say, the letter you were reading, the pounce. You know, I've had my fair share of pounces. Um, but I think that those things just gave me tough skin and they made me pretty much the woman that I am. And, and I've got to tell you the truth, like 
I clean up very nicely, Rob, but I've still got some of that old-fashioned Philly girl street, uh, you know, that street stuff still in me. I, I can't help it. It's just in there. Like like ragu. Is it ragu? It's in there, right? It's in there, yeah. I, I'm wondering, too, my, my family has deep roots in South Philly, too. Um, Italian family uh, from... Uh, Mercy Street, the, the 2400 block of Mercy Street, just, just south of Snyder, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel that, too. Like, there's a certain um, there's a certain unique sort of um, grittiness. And, of course, in the 60s and 70s, when my dad was going there all the time to visit his family, you know, I was very young, so I don't remember it that well. Um, but I, 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 I've heard so many stories, I know what kind of place it was for sure. Um, something that, you know, it's a kind of place where people tell you that's where they're from. You know, I'm from South Philly. That's where I'm from. And that means something. Yeah. It does. It does. And, uh, you know, I'm a Philadelphia fan from, you know, forever. Like that's never probably going to change. (laughs) (laughs) I know you, you can't change it, but it's, uh, you know, it could be better. Yeah. It could be a little better, but then what in the world couldn't be right uh, if I'm allowed, I want to just make a quick comment on the letter that you just read. Um, I, I Originally, I had five words, but now I'm going to add two more. So I've got seven words. The first are new world order, okay, population control, and the last two are heartbreaking uh, when we think about what's happening over there and, and just the loss of human life. And ultimately, I think that if we follow the money trail, uh, we may find out ultimately who are the culprits and why is this all happening? Why now? Yeah, I mean, the way that I look at it is is, is sort of like th- this this particular situation is a settler colonial imperial project. It started as a British imperial project and then became an American imperial project. And it fits into, you know, the general expansion of capital and, and empire. You know, I, I, I'll tell you that I might not, I, I don't necessarily agree with, say, New World Order, because I, I, I associate that with a conspiracy. This isn't a conspiracy. It's very clear what, what empire does, what, you know, what, what, it, what it requires you know, and 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 the expansion it requires, and and the, the you have to pick sides, and it's racist. So you know, it's not it, it, it's not a it's not a conspiracy. It's it's something that you know, it's just ba- the basic stuff we see every day. That's what it's built on. You know, I, and it's, I, it's, it's I very sad. It's, it's not a conspiracy in as much that it is actually really truly happening at this moment that we are chatting. People are dying. And so, no, that's not a conspiracy. That's very real. But I do believe, and and we don't have to go any further than you want to, but I I truly believe, Rob, that there, there are people who sit at a table who are perhaps the most powerful and influential people in the world. And I think that they, um, they have conversations about this sort of thing. Yeah, I, mean, I don't it's think hard. Russia just attacked Ukraine for no reason, and I don't think that uh, you know Hamas exists for no reason. Uh, I, I believe there is a bigger picture to it. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's hard to deny that when I, aren't aren't, aren't every, everybody's in Davos now, right? All the big CEOs. Like, why, what kind of business does, say, a tech CEO, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, like, what, what, what business are these all, do they all have together? You know, you don't have to, you don't, it doesn't have to seem seedy when they're, they're showing it to you on the news. They're going to the, one of the fanciest ski resorts in the world to, to sort of, like, have a confab. And yes, I think what you said is absolutely true. These things exist for historical material reasons. There's a reason Hamas exists, mostly to drive a wedge between Gaza and the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. You know, it, it's not, you know, there, there's, 
I don't, it's actually there's really nothing to, you know, it's not going on behind a dark curtain. You can see what it is. People could deny it and just say, well, you're, this is something else. Um, and I think that's part of it. That's part of it. They, they may not be denying it, but when you look at a world, uh, let, let's just stay right here in America for a hot, because I don't know what they're talking about over in France and Italy and, and Switzerland. Uh, but right here in America, you know, we have our own, a host of our own concerns that are uh, in many ways emotionally debilitating. And so when you've got grandmom and mom just trying to, you know, go to work every day and feed five children or whatever, uh, you know, that's enough to think about. So while the news is playing in the background, they may not even be thinking about the bigger picture of what is really happening. It's not that they don't care. They just may not have the intellectual uh, wherewithal to really be able to chime in when you've got five kids and two jobs and, you know, a husband or five husbands or whatever is going on in the family dynamics. We run into this all the time in like movement work and like political organizing. And when we talk about labor unions, labor unions were such a great tool for like regular people to to start to live a life that wasn't uh, wasn't in poverty, you know, and could have a, uh, you know, could have a family and, uh, and do all of that stuff. And of course, that was chipped away and chipped away and chipped away at. Uh, but now trying to build that back up is so difficult because the, the, the workers that are being exploited to such an extent do not have the time. It takes so much time and energy to organize people around something like a labor union that it's very difficult when you work two jobs or you, and your partner works two and you have three kids but they go to two different schools and they get the bus but then they have extracurriculars afterwards and then you have a home or a place you got you to keep your stuff together and you have to see your family. No one has time for that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's extremely, extremely difficult because the system that we live under requires that um, – you know, you know, regular people are bearing such a burden from it, uh, so it sort of perpetuates like that. Yeah, yeah, and and the human attention span is what twelve seconds. <laughs> so the mine's... TV is playing in the background, and it's twelve seconds, right? <laughs> yeah, mine's getting worse. I used to be able. I'm 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 actually struggling to get through whole books now because because <laughs> well, I have my phone in my hand all the time. When, when our hair turns this color white, <laughs> it all gets a little bit harder. I tell you, I'm downstairs, uh, and I met, I was going upstairs to get something, and Rob, I get to the top of the steps, and I'm like, no, why am I coming up here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm getting a little absent-minded. I bump into things. My vision's not great. I, I, I seem like a, I, I was a grandfather before my time, probably. I'm sort of doddering. It happens. I, I, I'm trying to embrace it, so. yeah. You know, these young people, uh, I feel so much for them uh, here in America and all over the world. They they have so many different issues that they're dealing with, and but they somehow think that they are invincible and that, oh, it won't happen to me. That happens to other people. It won't happen to me. They're, they've all got this, this Superman, Supergirl complex. Um, and it's unfortunate that they are literally, at least the black, brown, and golden children, uh, are, are, unfortunately, they are dying in the streets. And so th- that's just another one of the American concerns. Um, we, we're not in a war with any particular country, uh, but it's a war within ourselves here on American soil. Yeah, I mean, I will say that, um, of course, we are sort of at war with a bunch of other countries, but they like to keep it sort of like we we kind of. I mean, did did we did we send some missiles into Yemen? Sure. Uh, you know, did we try to intercept some ships uh, at sea? Maybe. You know, uh, you know, who's to say? You know, we do we love arming everyone, but once again, arming. Um, all of all of these sort of proxies uh, creates huge revenues uh, and just perpetuates the, the, the system as well. I mean, that's a that's a, a capitalist imperial enterprise. You know, look at look at Raytheon stock, folks. It's the line's going up. 
Yeah, it's well, I, I I don't know if I can comment on things that I'm I haven't studied or researched, but I can say this, Rob. Let us always be vigilant um, in watching the money trail. Let let us be vigilant in that because we will see that I believe that if we follow that rainbow, we're going to find so often that it is the the foundation of many of the problems that not only the children here in America suffer from, uh, but also children and people all over the world. Let's let's follow the money trail. I got to agree with you there. So the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about is how you got yourself. What were you doing and how did you make that transition into sort of a media, independent media and a journalist role? Like, how did that happen? Well, uh, I'll try not to be too long-winded, but I'm... You can be uh, as long-winded as you like. So, uh, you know, coming from Philadelphia and having, you know, that uh, that Italian black fighter uh, spirit inside of me, I was beginning to get into a lot of trouble. And my mother, God rest her soul, we love her, uh, she was good enough and wise enough to know that she had to get me out of that Philadelphia market. So she packed up everything she had and moved us here to the state of Delaware. I was just turning 16 years old and uh, we moved here to the state of Delaware and boy, was I mad as hell. Oh, honey, I brought all of the hell and fire and fury with me and uh, got in more trouble here in, in the state of Delaware until one day in school, cutting class, uh, gonna meet some friends out on the smoking corridor, cut class, we were gonna smoke some marijuana. Running through the halls, a teacher stopped me. A little short, teeny weeny little white woman with great big old huge round rim glass, uh, just kind of, by the grace of God, I didn't think it then, of course, she was in the hall and she stopped me. And I don't know if it was her age or what the reason was that I didn't disrespect her and run her over and just keep going right out the door, but I stopped. I literally stopped in my tracks for this woman who then proceeded uh, to make a long story short she proceeded to take me to her classroom. Instead of reporting me to the principal's office, she took me to her classroom. And in this classroom, Rob, was she opened up my world with, she was a theater arts teacher. And in she had frames and pictures and masks and uh, makeup and, you know, props. I had never seen anything like that before in my whole life. And I was absolutely enamored. So she made a deal with me at this point. Now class is over and she's walking me back out to my class. But she says to me, uh, you know, I'm not going to report you. If you, you know, and I'll let you come back to the classroom here. But you have to go to your other classes and excel if you want to be in my class. I love that offer. I love that challenge. And it changed my life because it changed my perspective. And I believe to this day, uh, you know, regardless of religious viewpoints, I really believe that something more divine than myself put that woman in my hall, in that hallway uh, to change my course because I got better in school. I actually even graduated from high school as a result uh, of this woman and all that she taught me and opened me up to. I, I just changed. I became a different person. Do you remember so, her? Do you remember her name by any chance? Do you remember? Yes. God bless her. I will always remember Mrs. Lois Watson. Lois Watson. Huge shout out to you. Um, yes. Just doing doing your thing, teaching people about the theater and about art. And just opening their mind. She Shout was out. so amazing. And she spoke so quietly and so softly. It was almost like a whisper. And so in the classroom, whenever she spoke, no matter what the rest of us were doing, 
you could hear a pin drop because we all had to stop doing it in order to hear the instructions. Uh, but she, I didn't know then, but later, many, many, many years later, she would be the reason why I would become a high school teacher. And I began teaching journalism. Uh, and I love it. I absolutely love it. So nice. Are, are you still teaching now? Uh, no, because of my advocacy and the ah, some, a yes. few twists and turns in my life, I don't have time to go back into teaching now. But I do hope that this is yet just another journey that somehow will turn me back into a teacher. But, you know, we'll see how how that divine uh, energy uh, moves me around. <laughs> yeah. So the advocacy turn, how 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 did that because I have sort of, you know, I worked in the corporate world for 24 plus years. And so people are always interested in sort of like my advocacy turn. And it's sort of stupid. It was like I started doing something that I wanted to do sort of for fun that would be a little more meaningful than just going to the office every day and that I thought I could be good at. And it just turned into, you know, more and more and more stuff. Um so what 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 was your what was your turn from sort of uh, an educator to a a a personality a journalist an independent you know sort of making your own independent news? Um, so because Miss Watson had such a big effect on my life, uh, I did journalism for about thirty years, maybe a little longer than that, and then I went into high school teaching, got tired of journalism, and went into high school teaching. But it was when I received a phone call at 3.30 in the morning from my son telling me that he had been um, arrested by Delaware State Troopers for a crime. That was the pivotal moment that turned me from high school teaching back into a full blast journalist. And so it's been a journey, uh, but I, I wanna share this with you as well as with your audience. When that phone call came in at 3.30 in the morning, um, it definitely changed my life. It was indeed that pivotal moment. It changed everything, Rob. It changed everything because my child, is, my son is the only child that I have. Uh, and we'll give a shout out to Justin. Peace and love, Justin. So when they told me that, uh, when Justin called me and said, mom, you know, I've been arrested. Uh, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I was in Wilmington. He was in Georgetown, Delaware, which is where he had committed the crime. I immediately got in my vehicle and drove to Georgetown. That was a whole, <laughs> you know, months. This was in 2009. Yeah. In 2009, my son was sentenced by a judge in Georgetown for the robbing of a liquor store. There have been no injuries, no one got hurt. Uh, but of course, it's still a strong arm crime. Even if you don't have a weapon, you, you know, you, it's strong arm crime. So he robbed the little uh, cl clerk, the liquor store clerk, and the judge sentenced my son to 25 years of incarceration for that. When I sat there in that courtroom that day and heard that, I didn't know anything about the law, absolutely nothing, not even my constitutional rights. So I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't know what. So they took my son away. My son is like 6'3", 200 and something extra pounds, really big child, right? Or man, I shouldn't call him a child. At the time- <laughs> you're, you're, the, you're, his, you're his mom, you can call him, you can call him that. You have special dispensation. Thank you so much. So, um, and he says, I'll always be bigger than him, no matter how big he gets. Uh, but my son, you know, is a large size man. And at the time that the judge sentenced him, uh, there's two correctional officers standing on both sides of Justin. Uh, and they literally had to hold him to keep him from falling out when he heard the numbers, because the plea agreement was only for four years. And that's, at the time, again, I didn't know it at the time, but now we're, we're 15 years later and I've done my due diligence and my research and my study. Uh, I've actually gotten pretty good at the law, to be honest with you. 
the sentencing guidelines would have made a liquor store robbery with no injuries. That should have been five to six years at tops, at tops. With an injury, it could have been 10 years. So why did my son get 25 years? Uh, you know, uh, again, I, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm just pulling a card out of my, my backside. But this particular judge in Georgetown does have a reputation of not being fond of people that look like my son. And uh, for the sake of protecting my son, I won't say that judge's name, but they do call him in the nickname, they call him the grave digger. Because when people that look like my son stand in front of them, uh, he, they, you know, he digs a grave for them. And that's what happened. And so that was the turning point for me of advocacy, knowing that we had been over sentenced. We should have gotten a sentence five, maybe six years uh, for no injury crime. But 25 years, I knew something was wrong. And that was the beginning of my advocacy because I didn't know which way to go, Rob, but I studied for the first seven years, I studied just to learn the law. And then one day somebody said, pick up Facebook. I said, face who? <laughs> face what book? <laughs> I've never read that one before. And um, that is where I began my movement of lifting my voice on a platform called Facebook. Uh, and so that's that's kind of it for me. And that was about eight years ago. Yeah, that, that's I, I, that's quite a motivation. I can completely understand that. Um, yeah, before we move on, is there any have 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 you made any headway in that case? I mean, is there any way to go with it? Is it outside guidelines? I do know. And I and I and I don't know as much about Delaware. I just know it was in sort of in the zeitgeist around the mid to late two thousands, you know, uh, about criminal justice reform. That the the sentencing guidelines were were far too strict. They were unfair. They weren't applied properly. Uh, and so there was a a an effort to sort of rectify those in some fashion. Did any of that? have any kind of positive impact in this case or no? Well, I, I'll say it to you this way. I started off again on that Facebook platform, just lifting my voice and talking about the, uh, the inhumane uh, criminal justice system, the prison conditions. You know, that was my whole platform. That was all I talked about. But I really wasn't getting anywhere just talking about it. So... I decided, uh, again, probably about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, I just woke up. Nothing woke me up but me and something maybe greater than myself woke me up and said, you've got to, you've got to connect with the people who can make a difference. Because just talking on Facebook wasn't doing anything other than it was bringing awareness and bringing attention to my case, but it was not helping me to resolve I had no remedy through Facebook. So it was then that I decided to get to know the players on the chess, chess board, the players on the field. And uh, again, this is eight years. I'm eight years in. And I've got to tell you, Rob, I have met so many people from the bottom boots on ground to those folks who were you know, not so necessarily boots on ground. <laughs> you know, our highest elected officials for the state of Delaware, outside of the state of Delaware, and everywhere in between. Uh, some people love me. Uh, some have compassion. And a lot of mothers, I find, they really, really have compassion for me. And I also can say there are some folks because of the way I will go back to that Philly South South girl, right? <laughs> I will open my mouth and I will say what I'm thinking. And some people find that very unpalpable. So when they see me walk into Legislative Hall, uh, they'll ease their way out the side door uh, just to avoid a conversation with me. <laughs> you and I, you and I have a lot more similarities than one would think. 
Yeah, I I get the same. Well, the one thing I will say uh, is, and we always stress this, and yours is a good example and mine's a good example. In Delaware, because of its size, because it's sort of incestuous, because everybody knows everybody, that also can be used to your advantage because you can get in front of all kinds of different people. And you can make a name for yourself, whether it's, you know, a name that people want to run away from because they're afraid or, uh, or, or not. But if you, if you put yourself out there in a way, you will get out there. I think you, I, I completely understand that. And I think it's actually hopeful for people who think that they can't. You definitely can for sure do that. And I, I would say this to your listening audience, um, again, eight years of traveling this journey and meeting so many people. I, I just can't even begin to say how many people I've met in eight years uh, to the point where now my podcast and my radio show is about interviewing our elected officials, our wannabe elected officials, uh, all things politics, and all things advocacy. So that's kind of the brand where I am. I give people a voice, make some intelligent noise, uh, which that came to me one night at a party. <laughs> Out I of the it. party, we're partying, right? Uh, make some noise. I said, well, you know what? Maybe I should make some intelligent noise uh, about my particular case and my son and what's going on with Justin. And so... Uh, at one point, I, I got uh, into the governor's ear, the current governor, John Carney. I got in his ear so heavy and so thick that he actually appointed someone, uh, you know, uh, with the Bureau of Corrections, the Depart Delaware Department of Corrections, to sort of be my, my liaison person. If anything is happening in my world that I need to talk about in regards to my son, uh, this particular person and I, uh, we'll have those conversations to see how we can make things better uh, for Justin. And I got to tell you, I do indeed appreciate that person. I adore that person. That person and I have become actually what I'd like to think uh, is we're friends outside of our respective role. He, you know, he works for the Department of Correction. I work as an advocate. We should be adversaries, but we're actually not. Uh, we're actually friends. Yeah, I'll give a shout out. I I attended a, an event in Old Newcastle, at the library, uh, last week, on probation reform. And there was you know, a few dignitaries there, here and there. Uh, but a, a guy came up to me. Uh, I guess he recognized my voice because he knew who I was. He's a podcast. He said, oh, "You're the podcast guy." I said, "Yeah." He said, "I love the podcast." Now I'm looking at him. You can tell he's a cop. I'm like, this guy's a cop. He's got the short hair. He's a little stocky guy, you know. And I'm like, okay. And he introduced himself. Uh, Paul Shavik was, I think, his name from the Department of Corrections. And I want to give that guy a shout-out because he seemed like a nice enough fella. Now, again, he knows we don't agree. Um, he knows. He, I could tell he was a podcast listener, too, because he knew sort of my views on stuff. Um, but I, I will give him a lot of credit for um, for sitting through people's stories, for asking questions. Um, you know, he he must have heard me say many times that I think our prisons are torture chambers. I think they're inhumane. Uh, I think it's a crime what goes on there. I think the uprising in Smyrna is indicative of the kind of conditions that we make human beings live in. So there, I said it. Um, but but we're not going to get anywhere unless we unless we try to make these arguments to people who can actually improve those conditions. You know, and I think I, I think that's what I had to learn, Rob. Is you know just just running my mouth on Facebook about how awful the situation was, was not, I was not, you know, change, I wasn't changing anything. I wasn't moving the needle. So I had to start building relationships with the people who actually had the power and authority who could change the needle. And so that's when I began to uh, make or build professional relationships 
with our elected legislators, uh, including Governor John Carney. Uh, and again, to get me, I guess, out of his ear, he, he you know, he, he kind of pushed me off on the Department of Corrections, but it's worked out very well so far. And, you know, I have met a host of people uh, within the Department of Corrections, some of them I would prefer not to uh, meet again. Uh, and then there are some that I would absolutely sit down and have coffee with. So, you know, and I'm not going to say who those people are one way or another. They probably uh, to, know. They probably it's know. It's probably best that <laughs> that I tell, but they, they probably know who they are. And, and that uh, would extend as well to some of our Delaware legislators. Um, but I can also say there are some amazing human beings that work at Legislative Hall that I've got to say they are real and they have feelings and they are human. And I really am thankful for that. For that, I can say thank you for that. Yeah. It's, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, Again, I'm in a similar position as you. I, I um, I've taken a new role, um, sort of officially. Um, it was happening when we spoke the first time, but uh, I have a role at the uh, Office of Defense Services in police reform policy, um, through the Delaware Center for Justice, and you know I'm in the same position. You know, people know who I am. Uh, I think. I, I think I get some level of respect for the kind of work that I do, but I also know that people there's there's many people that hate my guts. Uh, but I feel like it's all it's all the right people though. It's, I think part of the reason you get respect from some people is because you are because you're, you're not you're willing to fight. You're willing to do what what, what had to be done on on uh, you know second and chunk or whatever you know when you're in South Philly you know you got to be ready to fight. And I think people respect that if you come at them with. Um, you know, with some knowledge, intelligent noise. If it's intelligent noise, uh, you know, you kind of have to, you kind of have to reckon with it. Like you can ignore it, but you can't really speak out against it. But you have to reckon with it. You know. You, and I believe you, that I made myself very clear uh, from the very first moment that I began to build some of these relationships. I mean, I reached out on telephone calls, emails. Uh, other people, whatever it took in order for me to make contact uh, with certain individuals uh, in the state of Delaware, I did whatever it took. I did not care. But one thing that I remained was true to myself, uh, being very transparent, being very honest. I do not tell lies, uh, not any maliciously, intentionally. I don't do that. Uh, if I can make a mistake, of course, and then if I correct myself, I'll apologize. But I think if nothing else, people are going to respect me because I'm being forthright. You don't have to wonder, what is Rochelle Wilson thinking uh, when I'm standing right in front of your face or behind your back? You know what I'm thinking. Uh, and, and in this particular movement, make some intelligent noise. I am always thinking about my son's well-being uh, and the care that he receives while he's under the custody of the state of Delaware. And eventually, uh, I will be dealing with probation and parole because our commutation papers have been sent and there are people who have received them and, and I'm waiting to hear, what do you got to say about our commutation papers? You know, How does that work? Does the, does the governor have the final say on that, or is there a, a process to commute? How, how there is, is the, a process. It must first go through the prison board, uh, psychological evaluation. They need to make sure my son is not crazy. Uh, after being in that place for 15 years, I don't know how anyone could not be crazy, right? Anybody who comes out and can have a conversation with you, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I, I can't even, I, I hear stories, obviously, from people I interview, and and, and I'm friends with uh, people who do journalism for the news, who have covered the, the, the Vaughn, who have covered Sussex Correctional. I can't even imagine what it's like coming out, but that's another story. And, and when Justin comes home, and I don't know when that'll be, but I'm just trusting, you know, divine energy, it will be soon. I'm telling you, if you want someone to make some intelligent noise, 
that's the person that you want to sit down and have an interview with. He is smarter than I am. Uh, but no one would know that until they get an opportunity to talk to him. But just uh, so let me finish. It's the the prison board goes first. Right. And then I believe it's the uh, pardon parole board. And then it's the. Or maybe it's the pardon board and then it's the parole board and then it goes to the governor's desk. If he gets through all three of those, which by the grace of God, he will. You get through all three of those boards with a yes, it sits on the governor's desk. And I'm going to tell you, his papers haven't even reached all three of those boards yet, but people have already spoken to the governor about my son. Uh, we just need the paperwork to catch up with the advocacy for his right. release. Well, I can tell you this. I had a brief conversation. Well, I had a long conversation with our current uh, treasurer. Colleen Davis, who is running for U.S. Rep. Colleen Davis. Yes. Yes. Um, and we had a little, a brief discussion because I was interested in how the parole board, because it just seems, it seemed weird to me that it's the treasurer, um, the, I think the auditor, and like, and the and the uh, lieutenant governor. So I was like, well, that's weird. How does that work? And the Secretary and, of State, Jeffrey Bullock. I oh, mean, sorry. there's five sorry. people on yeah, each yeah, yeah. board. Well, I'm five not gonna use I'm not gonna say anything about Jeffrey Bullock because I can't lobby him. He's one of the guys that hates my guts. So okay. <laughs> well, but the I'm others... not gonna say anything about any of them. It's Lydia know, York, no. Colleen Davis, and all of that. But <sighs> no, no, it's I think... five people on yeah, each yeah. board. So you're talking about fifteen people. They allegedly put these boards in place to be non-biased, just regular human beings who can make a decision on another human being's life. Uh, you know, but but my issue with that is not so much, uh, you know, that they will be fair and impartial as much as it is to understand the backstory. You, you've got these papers sitting in front of you that give you a list of these crimes or who this person is before you ever even get to see the person and give them an opportunity to explain the backstory. And Rob, I'm big on a backstory because everybody has one. There's a reason that people are in prison. You know, you don't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I think I'll just go to jail for life today. <laughs> Something happens, there's a backstory. Yeah, I think all the people I named are going to take uh, take that very seriously. My concern was just that everybody would get that, that the people, I, 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 people need to make sure they get that opportunity. I don't want it to just be rote, like they give you 10 names and then you you pick three or something. Like, I, 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 I think I, I, I echo your sentiment that this really needs to be a process that is, uh, is, is thoughtful and and really trying to solve a, actually a problem because people, as I said, are being maltreated for no reason. They're not being looked at really as fully human because we don't give them an opportunity to tell their story or to try to, you know, improve themselves. I think there are some programs available, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking for real, for real. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that there's more effort and time and, and, and resources and capacity put towards rectifying a lot of this and people's stories can be told and we can start healing a little bit. I'd, I'd like to inject this for your listening audience, and I do pray that this will, you know, just go far and wide. Uh, the United States of America, if you look at our prison system, I mean, we could look at a lot of different time frames, the 1960s, the 1950s, the, you know, the 1970s and 80s. All of these different time frames had a different level of um Reasoning, if I can use that terminology, I'm not sure that that's the right one. But the, the point that I'm making is that here in the America, people seem to be really big on punishment and retaliation. If you hit me, Rob, uh, the American way is that I hit you harder. You punch me in the eye, so I have to punch you in both eyes. But the problem with that, and we'll take it all the way to, to a grade school, 
if you hit me in the eye and, and we're in the first grade or sixth grade, and then I hit you in both eyes, right? The teacher tells us that we're wrong and we both are gonna get in trouble for hitting. And yet our United States military, we're supposed to be the superpower of the world. The prison system in America is built on retaliation, not rehabilitation. They want punishment. You hit me, so I want you to go to jail. So instead of me hitting you back in the eyeballs, let's put you in jail for X amount of years, and they call that justice? But it's not justice, because people are not going there to these institutions to be rehabilitated with real rehabilitation services. They are sent there to rot away their lives to give up their emotional and mental stability so that somebody else can feel like justice has been served. And it's just the farce. And I want your audience to understand that. I, I appreciate everything you said. I do hope they understand that. Um, everything, uh, you know, all the people I've ever talked to and everything I've ever done is to try to get people to understand that. And I couldn't have put it better myself. So before we go, I have one last topic. This is going to be controversial because I always try to save the controversial stuff until the end. One of, one of the things we talked about when I was on your show the first time, uh, I don't even want to say we talked about it. I think we just sort of alluded to, you know, there's a certain ethic, journalism ethic, that, you know, you try to be somewhat neutral, you know, whatever. Um, I, I, I actually don't agree with that. And I'm interested in your thoughts. What I try to do, and you mentioned it earlier sort of as part of your journalism and also part of your advocacy, is always being genuine. I think people, people have to sort of reckon with that because they're used to being like stabbed in the back and they're used to being gossiped about. Not gossip about you, but, we'll, but Carl will record it and we'll put it on the internet. So everybody knows what I'm saying. There's no, I'm not hiding anything, you know. So I feel like... I try to do journalism that is, if it's not neutral, uh, but it's rigorous. If you want to argue with it, I encourage you. You can take it however you want to take it. Uh, you know, you don't, you, you don't have to come into something um, sort of. I I always looked at a reporter or a journalist, somebody in the media trying to be neutral about something as a pretense. And if they're pretending to be something, I don't trust them. I, 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 I can't trust you. If you're pretending that, that X equals Y, or that this person said this and this person said this and they have the same standing, or these are just the details and there's no real context around them, and you're just, this is how you have to tell me that, I, you're either very dim and don't have an opinion about like what happens or or you're or you're holding it back and you're pretending and you're putting on a pretense and i feel like that pretense is actually worse than just telling me what you think and i'll i'll figure out whether or not i believe you or whether or not i feel like all the information you're giving me has been really rigorously looked at and and checked and and this is what you're telling me you know so i i actually i so I'm just interested in your thoughts on that because I remember you sort of mentioning that on the show, and so I just wanted to see what you had to say about it. I believe that it is it is imperative. After again, I'm 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 looking at about forty. I mean, I'm sixty years old, so I think I might be looking at about forty plus years in journalism. Uh, I really did the kickoff thing when I was about seventeen, so it's been a journey of learning. Uh, and I've made so many bumbling mistakes and paid the price for that. So when I say things like I'm neutral, uh, it's typically me talking about a particular candidate one way or the other because I want to be fair. But if you walk up to me on the street and you ask me what I think about this candidate versus that candidate, oh, honey, I'm going to give it to you real and raw. But while I am presenting myself as a professional journalist uh, and a commentary and a radio host, I try to stay in the middle 
and allow other people to come up with their own decisions rather than me uh, try to sway them one way or another. So I'll give you the information. Here's the dirt on this one. Here's the dirt on this one. You make a decision on which 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 one is dirtier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a per you know I've never I've never had somebody use that particular analogy, but that's the perfect one. We had to the, the thing about that's the only electoral politics is you had to find out who's dirtier. You know they call it a lesser evil. You know that's kind of getting that's kind of getting boring. I think they should be real about it and say they're both extremely dirty. Who's dirtier? You know, I love I, I, uh, right now I'm I'm being mindful. Uh, there may be a there may be a day when you open the gate and just let the horse run free. Uh, <laughs> but I I am working on my diplomacy. <laughs> well, I told yeah, you I clean up well, right? But I'm fine. just a street Philly girl. <laughs> Look, as far as people know, I'm perfectly professional and I hold no bad attitudes about anybody. Yeah, as far as you know. Well, I might have one or two bad attitudes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so before we go, I want to make an announcement. This is a perfect time to make it. Um, there, There is a panel discussion planned for today. If you're listening to this the day it drops on Friday, it was planned tonight. But if you're also listening to this on the day it drops, you're going to notice that there's it's snowing outside. Probably. As far as we know. Well, this certainly is, is Black Ice Roads. That part yeah. is real. So it's bad. So that event, the event that Councilwoman Sinead Darby was sponsoring uh, at the, at the, uh, the Church of uh, Andrew and Matthew, um, is going to be postponed. But I've gotten assurances from one of the panel members, our friend Medina, uh, that it will be rescheduled. So we will be able to hear um, the, the panel make these discussions. Jeffrey Richardson's uh, talking. I, I've heard him speak. Um, he actually was part of the group that helped us kick the call off when we, when we did the Delaware call. I'm very excited to see him speak. Uh, Mike Abel's uh, husband, uh, Dr. Robert Abel, uh, will, will, be, um, will be on the panel. So it's going to be a great panel. So now at least we have time to sort of um, kind of pump it up. Uh, the, the the topic is a very very apt one right now. Uh, it's black solidarity with Palestine. Um, the reasons that you know, if you are an advocate or you're somebody who um, looks at um, politics uh, and 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 black power politics, um, there's a lot of historical reasons you should have a lot of solidarity with the Palestinian people and the people in Gaza. Um, I, I think um, one of the things I thought about when I read the opening piece um, was that that is what they're going through. Jim Crow apartheid and Jim Crow sort of segregation is what's happening in the West Bank. What's happening in Gaza, it's, it's it, almost unable to be described. But um, what, what Fadi uh, described in his thing is, 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 seg is Jim Crow violent segregation. And I think everybody understands that. And certainly Mandela understood it. So I'm excited. Uh, there's there's going to be more information on this um, as we go because it hasn't been rescheduled yet. Um, but we, Rachel, may go cover it together. I will definitely be covering it as soon as I uh, receive the email of the reschedule. I will be there with camera and microphone and I will be covering that. Nice. Um, yeah, I got to cover that because it's really important. Another issue, uh, and I don't want to spill too many of the beans, but another issue that has really been big here in Wilmington is something called residency. Yes. And uh, a comment or two made by the current Mayor Michael Przicki, uh that I want to get into that. But, He's a but huge fan of mine, huge <laughs> fan of mine, that guy. He loves me. When he sees me, he's just so happy. He's like seeing an old friend. <laughs> oh, no. You know what? It's leave, give, leave it up to you. Leave it up to you to, right at the end of this podcast to drop Mike Przicki's name on me and just put me in the red. I'm in the red now. Jeez, Louise. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> well... 
Oh, my goodness. Rachelle Wilson, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Uh, and I'm so glad that I, I feel like this is going to be um, the beginning of a, uh, of a fun little partnership here in Wilmington. And uh, I'm just glad uh, that we've kicked it off. So thanks a lot. I am so thankful for Jonathan Tate introducing us, uh, feeling like we were a good match. And I'm telling you, we are hand in glove, Rob. You and I. <laughs> we're hand yeah, in glove. I- I'm glad you mentioned that because I mentioned it. I mentioned it on your socials. You mentioned it on mine. Jonathan Tate from the Delaware DSA. He was the guy that put us together. Thank you very much, sir. Shout out to you. Yes. So thanks again. And folks, uh, left is best. Best.